Lydia Maria Child, abolitionist. Taking up arms against slavery, the famous novelist foreshadowed the vexed role of the white woman activist today. Portrait of Lydia Maria Child, C1865, photographed by John Adams Whipple. Courtesy the Smithsonian slash mock. In 1833, Lydia Maria Child was testing what being a woman meant for the abolition of slavery. Child, a beloved author of novels, self-help books and children's stories, had shocked readers with a book denouncing slavery, an appeal in favor of that class of Americans called Africans, 1833. The appeal detailed the history of slavery in the United States, exposed the power of enslavers in U.S. politics, and decried the U.S. economy's foundation in trafficked Africans. It ended with a rebuke of the Northern racism that, Child asserted, allowed slavery not just to survive but to thrive. To denounce slavery openly in 1833, especially for a white American, was to be a radical. Most white Northerners tolerated slavery, assured by statesmen that it was politically necessary and by religious leaders that it was biblically sanctioned. Of those who opposed it, most assumed that nothing could be done. Child, together with a small group of activists led by William Lloyd Garrison, felt differently. They were not just anti-slavery. They were abolitionists, convinced that slavery should end immediately and without compensation to enslavers. The hypocrisy of championing U.S. principles of freedom while enslaving others, they argued, was appalling. The exchange of forced labor for national prosperity was shameful. The whole atrocity should end, and now. Some of these agitators had formed the New England Anti-Slavery Society in Boston in 1832. Early abolitionists were highly literate, some were prosperous, the wide freedom of expression they enjoyed, along with new printing technologies, meant their ideas could spread. Alarmed politicians and clergy began to warn that abolition would crush the young nation's economy, destroy its unity, and upend the social order. Abolitionists were unmoved. There was a higher moral law and, if abolishing slavery meant the end of the U.S. as they knew it, so be it. Child and others also organized the first national political gathering of black and white women, the Anti-Slavery Convention of American Women, in 1837, where they passed resolutions decrying white racism and condemning the clergy's apathy. In Philadelphia in 1838, they met again and elected the black members Susan Paul, Sarah Mapps Douglas and Martha Ball to the executive committee. They discovered physical bravery as well. Together, black and white women faced down anti-abolitionist mobs in Boston and Pennsylvania, sometimes placing their bodies between bellowing rioters and abolitionist speakers, allowing the latter time to escape. As they organized, petitioned, argued and schemed, Child continued writing, this time about women. Her two-volume history of the condition of women, documenting women's lives through the ages and across continents, was published in 1835. The movement grew. In the mid-1830s, Angelina and Sarah Grimke, natives of South Carolina who had renounced their slaveholding past, joined their ranks, as did a fiery Quaker schoolteacher named Abby Kelly. In the next years, dozens of female anti-slavery societies were formed from Pennsylvania to Maine as more white women recognized the evil of slavery and the power they had to end it. My wife and grown-up daughters, one farmer complained, have got a notion out of some tract they have been reading that we ought not to eat rice, nor sugar, nor anything that is raised by the labor of slaves. We abolitionist women, Angelina Grimke wrote, are turning the world upside down. 
This was true, but only to a point. If turning the world upside down meant ending slavery, abolitionist women were united. If it meant racial equality, they were not. That slavery should end did not, for many white women, imply that black Americans were their equals. So, while many female anti-slavery societies included black women, both in their membership and in their leadership, some excluded them completely. Others restricted membership to ladies only and made clear that lady meant white. Black women sometimes found it more effective, and certainly less demeaning, to avoid this insulting hypocrisy by forming their own societies. E. Then our professed friends have not yet rid themselves of prejudice, lamented Maps Douglas. Carrie Greenidge's recent book on the Grimke sisters and Linda Hirschman's work on Chapman also highlight the paternalism with which even the most committed white abolitionists sometimes treated their black allies. Even those like Child who embraced racial equality also relentlessly advocated uplift suasion, falsely assuring black people that white Americans would respect them just as soon as they dressed nicely and talked softly. As these white women well knew, the opposite was all too frequently true. In addition to their fundraising and petitioning, some women, especially Kelly and the Grimke sisters, began to give anti-slavery speeches. This, they knew, was a risk. Clergy still widely repeated a biblical exhortation that commanded women to stay silent in public. Disobedience risked more of the ostracism that, as Child's case had shown, awaited those who crossed religious and political leaders. But the Grimkes and Kelly, it turned out, were powerful orators, and using their newfound talent to promote the cause they loved was exhilarating. My auditors literally sit sometimes with mouths agape and eyes astare, so that I cannot help smiling in the midst of rhetorical flourishes to witness their perfect amazement at hearing a woman speak in the churches, wrote Angelina Grimke as her audiences swelled. Initially, male abolitionists like James Burney and Louis Tappan encouraged them. In Child's case, they tried to shame her into speaking more. Think, Tappan urged her, how much the audience will be interested if you allow me to announce that Mrs. Child of Boston is about to address them. As the movement grew, it began to attract more conservative men, including members of the clergy. These men had indeed come around to the belief that humans should not be enslaved. Perhaps they congratulated themselves on their progressiveness. But even if they could imagine the end of slavery, the thought of a woman speaking in public was a bridge too far. After watching in dismay as the Grimkes spoke and Child wrote, they finally objected in print. On June 27, 1837, in what became known as the Pastoral Letter, the General Association of Congregational Ministers of Massachusetts wrote, Soon, even the women's original allies, fellow abolitionists who had urged them not to let any foolish scruples about their gender stand in the way of doing so much good, began to urge them to withdraw. One letter to Child, calling on the magnanimity of women and reminding her that the wrongs and sufferings of the slaves are greater than those of women, asked women, in effect, to stand down for the good of the cause. Why, oh you never saw, concluded the Boston abolitionist Caroline Weston, such a piece of malicious twaddle as his letter was. When the women proved incalcitrant, conservative clergy essentially offered abolitionist men a deal. They would lend their support, along with the social and financial capital that implied, to the movement. But the women would have to go home. 
Suddenly, the momentum the women had built, the fairs, the petitions, the legal advocacy and physical bravery, stalled as it became necessary first to fight the men who wanted to prevent them from doing any of it. In their search for an argument that would allow them to continue working, some white women settled on a powerful analogy. The men in question had apparently been persuaded that slavery was wrong. What if they compared themselves to slaves? There were, some women began to argue, distressing similarities. Women were not persons in the eyes of the law. Everything they inherited or earned belonged to their husbands. Their education and employment options were severely limited. They were almost entirely at the mercy of their husbands' whims and misconduct. Were these things not also true of slaves? The comparison began to feel like a revelation. We have good cause to be grateful to the slave, Kelly said. In striving to strike his irons off, we found most surely that we were manacled ourselves. The analogy gained momentum. Authors such as Bell Hooks and others have long pointed out that this analogy was absurd in scale and toxic in effect. It placed white women's real but comparatively small sufferings on a level with enslaved women in the South, many of whom were subjected to backbreaking work and sadistic punishments, vulnerable all the while to enslavers who could rape them and then sell their own children. It also focused its appeal for sympathy on white women while free black women, who were oppressed by the same legal restrictions as white women, bore additional burdens of entrenched poverty, degrading work and violent prejudice. Tell us no more of Southern slavery, the black abolitionist Maria Stewart pleaded, for with few exceptions. I consider our condition but little better than that. Insofar as marriage resembled slavery, it was indeed in desperate need of reform. But how were black women to take this increasing focus on white women's suffering? Some, quite simply, did not. You white women speak here of rights. I speak of wrongs, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper admonished her white allies some time later. I tell you that if there is any class of people who need to be lifted out of their airy nothings and selfishness, it is the white women of America. The escalating rhetoric among white women, Grimke's arguments, Child's exhortations, Chapman's sarcasm, Kelly's stridents, had another effect. More conservative women began to feel uneasy. When the much-respected author Catherine Beecher wrote in 1837 that whatever throws a woman into the attitude of a combatant either for herself or others throws her out of her appropriate sphere, some of them feared she was right. When Chapman attacked the clergy in her annual report for the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society, more conservative members asked her to moderate it. When she refused, they issued a disclaimer. She resigned in fury. Before long, the organization had split. When the Quaker teacher Kelly was nominated for the executive committee of the American Anti-Slavery Society in New York in 1840, several of its leading members walked out, unwilling to participate in an organization that included female leadership. In Congress, the masters speak while the slaves are denied a vote, Kelly responded. I rise because I am not a slave. By the next day, opponents of women's participation had quit the American Anti-Slavery Society and founded a rival group. The 1840s, then, found a movement not just in fractious disarray but depending on an argument adopted by white women to defend themselves from chauvinism. The argument created a strange psychological space that allowed white women to be both condescending and self-pitying. 
it meant that one of the movement's dominant analogies was built on a gross mischaracterization of their own status as compared with the people whose sufferings they claimed to champion. As their former allies urged them to retreat, some white women also became embittered by claims that their rights were of secondary importance or, worse, at odds with those of black people. The stage was set for a bitter conflict that erupted when slavery had been eradicated, but the racism it had produced grew in some ways more entrenched. Two decades and a civil war later, the question facing the U.S. was not whether women should speak, but whether they could vote. Post-war suffrage was expanding, but to whom? Given that there was little political appetite among white men for allowing both black men and all women to vote, women were again told that their rights were secondary. Some quickly agreed. That the loyal blacks of the South should vote is a present and very imperious necessity, Child wrote in The Independent in 1867. The suffrage of women can better afford to wait. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, by then a leading warrior for white women's rights, disagreed. When it became clear that the 15th Amendment would extend suffrage to black men but not to any women, she decided to oppose it. She turned to racist rhetoric to convince others to oppose it as well. Think of Patrick and Sambo and Hans and Yantan, she urged her readers in 1868, who do not know the difference between a monarchy and a republic, who never read the Declaration of Independence. Now, she said, imagine this band of misfits making laws for Lydia Maria Child. Child was vexed beyond measure by Stanton's racism. When Stanton wrote an editorial entitled All Wise Women Will Oppose the Fifteenth Amendment, Child called it the most impardonable of all her doings. Surely we ought to have learned, by this time, that the rights of one class of people can never be secured by taking away the rights of another, she lamented. But this was not the lesson that Stanton and her allies had learned. Instead, they had learned that racist arguments often worked. Expanding the vote to black men, Stanton began to warn, would lead to fearful outrages on womanhood, especially in the southern states. At a meeting of the American Equal Rights Association in May 1869, Stanton engaged in public and painful disagreement with Frederick Douglass and Frances Ellen Watkins Harper about whose rights should be honored first. The tension led to yet another split. Those who favored the 15th Amendment founded the American Woman's Suffrage Association to compete with Stanton's National Woman's Suffrage Association. The schism again set back movements for racial justice and women's suffrage, much, no doubt, to the joy of the enemies of both. Who is the culprit here? Surely white women bear much of the blame. But in judging when movements for justice go wrong, we must look to the original wrong. White men were the primary architects of both slavery in the U.S. and the stifling injustice that characterized marriage. They had created impossible choices faced by abolitionist women and punished them with ostracism when they did not comply. They had fostered an atmosphere in which racist arguments like the ones some white women used were effective. And then the harms had multiplied. When white women deployed these arguments, they deepened the injustices they claimed to be fighting. They laid down barriers to true solidarity among black and white women that still exist today. It is such contamination born of oppression that, no doubt, was what prompted Child to write one of the darkest sentences of her entire correspondence. Deeply, deeply do I feel the degradation of being a woman, Child wrote to Angelina Grimke in the 1830s as the woman question raged, not the degradation of being what God made woman, but what man has made her. 
This Women's History Month, may we resolve to end this degradation and any poisonous analogies that perpetuate it as well. Human Rights and Justice Syndicate this essay, slash syndication, article underscore slug equals Lydia Maria Child and the Vextrol of the Woman Abolitionist and article underscore name equals Lydia Maria Child, Abolitionist and author equals Lydia Mullen Dandate equals 27 March 2023. Aeon is not-for-profit and free for everyone. Make a donation. Get Aeon straight to your inbox. Join our newsletter. Essay. Family Life. Honey. I sold the kids. We have laws to protect children from factory work. Why aren't they protected from parents who monetize their lives online? Clarissa Sabag Montefiore Essay Earth Science and Climate The Return of Silvopasture This ancient practice, nurturing animals and trees in an ecological system, fights climate change and restores the land. Liz Carlyle and Nikki Mazzaroli. Essay. Thinkers and Theories. The Sage and His Foibles. Scholars cannot agree whether the letters of Plato are fake or genuine. Is this just a symptom of misplaced reverence? James Rome. Essay. Education. Unschooling. It takes nerve to go against the grain and take your child out of school. But, for some, that's when learning really starts. Naomi Fisher and Heidi Steele Essay Consciousness and Altered States Stuck with the soul The idea of the soul is obviously a nonsense, yet its immaterial mysterious nature has deep hooks in the human psyche. David P. Barish Essay Art. Milk, pity, and power. Since antiquity, artists have depicted a perverse scene of a daughter breastfeeding her aged father. What does it mean?